0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. So as we begin a new series this morning, we are diving into Christmas. Um, Our series is called Christmas on Display. And over the next several weeks, as we lead up to Christmas Day, we're going to look at God's love on display, His hope on display, His very presence on display, His glory on display, the joy. I mean, all these phrases that we hear about come from the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? And as we press into God's Word, that's what we see. It's all about Jesus. Uh, the, The whole Scripture, when you pick up the Word of God, everything from the beginning to the maps is all about Jesus. Uh, all intertwined through Scripture. It's about this baby who was born in a manger. And so, uh, we kind of focus on this this time of His birth, but we realize His birth was simply so that He could fulfill all the prophecies about Him as our Redeemer, as the Anointed One, as the Christ. When we call Him Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is both a name and a title. He is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so, as we press into Christmas uh, I just want to really drive us there. Um, it is great. I, I was kind of looking online a little bit. We've got a number of folks that have just kind of been jumped in online with us. Saw several folks that have moved away. Greg and Jess up in New York uh, are with us this morning. Miss you guys. Great to, to have you. Um, saw some folks in the Chicago area, Beth and Aaron, both up in the Chicagoland area, Autumn and Jacob, actually over in Greece tuning in with us uh, right now. It's evening over there, but good evening, good morning. Um, Several folks locally, uh, Gary, Judy, um, several others that are jumping on. So it's just, it's great to know that as we gather in the room, there are people that are gathering with us. And so we love you. Uh, Thanks for for tuning in. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to grab it this morning and uh, turn to the book of Romans. Uh, As we kick off this Christmas series, Uh, It may seem a little strange. We are not jumping into a Christmas narrative. Um, You might go, hey, how can we talk about Christmas, but we're not looking at Matthew, we're not looking at Luke. We're going to look at the book of Romans, which, if you've studied the book of Romans, can be really intimidating. I was in my mid-20s, had a guy that stepped into my life, really began to disciple me. He asked me to co-lead a study through the book of Romans, and and I, I had been around church long enough to know, uh... No, that's scary. There's a lot of theology there. Well, here's what I've discovered through my my life and ministry. We all have a theology. There's things you believe about God, whether it's true or not. So, as we press into God's Word, what we want to get into is good theology, right theology, a right thinking about who God is. Because you, you hold a theology, and in many ways, it's tainted by the world, by your ideas, by your influences, by social media. It's incredible the amount of influence that social media and the media as a whole have on the lives of people. And, and it's true of Christians as well. We'll look at that in a moment. But you and I hold a theology. There, we have ideas and beliefs about God, and some of it we don't want to believe. And so, we set that aside, and so we come up with this, uh, our own little idea of theology. And yet, when we press into God's Word, we see His grace and His mercy and His love just poured out for us. And there's no better way to have hope, to have peace, to have the joy of Christmas, than to have a true, right understanding of God and His Word. Amen? There's no greater gift. If you want to get yourself a gift this year, just press into God's Word. So this morning, we're beginning a Christmas series in the book of Romans, and and we're going to really look at one verse, but you can never just look at one verse because you have to look at all of it in context. We have to understand what has happened to get us to this point. Part of the problem in in church life is is we have pressed into an idea of what I call Bible McNuggets. As Danny was finishing up our Daniel series last week, he got into Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. We all know it, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for you to prosper, not to harm you, plans to give you hope. And if you That's an idea of a Bible McNugget. We put it on shiplap, we put it in our home, and, and, and it's, a, it's great. No, don't get me wrong. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. But when we simply grab something out of complete context and we don't understand where it fits in God's Word, it's easy to develop a bad theology around it. So before we look at one verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we have to understand where it sits in Paul's letter because Paul didn't just write a verse. He wrote a letter to the church in Rome, to these believers, these guys who are following Christ. And so uh, to kind of understand where we are, let's just summarize a little bit of what has taken place. Again, Paul did not write chapters, he wrote a letter. Theologians came along, commentators came along later to help us understand God's Word. It got sort of broken up into chapters and verses. But when we look at Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 is all about God's general revelation, that God reveals Himself through His creation. And this is where we get this, this theology of what's called general revelation. In other words, God reveals Himself to all of His creation. God doesn't live in the trees. He doesn't live in the skies, but He reveals Himself that way. So that, uh, as we look at Scripture, right, so that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament displays His handiwork. You can't look at, at science. You can't look at astrology and astronomy and look at all these things in the stars, and the heavens, in the intricacy of DNA and, and, and medical uh, things that they're discovering about the human body without going, God is incredible. Am I right? I mean, God is incredible. And so it's all about general revelation. And Paul is saying, God reveals himself through his creation so that no one was without excuse. And then he goes on and he begins to deal with the moralist. The person who says, well, I'm a good moral person. I have good moral behavior. I do good things. And Paul says, it doesn't matter doesn't matter how moral you think you are or how good you think you are. Then he goes on and he begins talking to the religionist, the person who says, I'm doing all the right things, I'm doing church, and that might be some of us this morning, whether you're in the room or online. You might be jumping through religious hoops thinking that somehow God is pleased with you because you're doing religious things. I define religion as man's best attempt to reach God. If you're doing anything in your life as a religious activity, thinking, oh, God's going to be pleased with me, my good's going to outweigh my bad at the end of the day because I'm either moral or I'm a good religious person at the end of the day, Paul is saying it doesn't matter. Romans chapter 3, he begins to press into the God's faithfulness. And because God is faithful, God is righteous. And he says, because God is faithful and righteous and true and holy, you and I are not. That's the summary. He says, on one hand, you have this holy, righteous God, and then you have us. Over here is this holy, righteous, pure, loving, gracious God, and over here is Dave, a sinner. No matter how moral, no matter how religious, no matter how good I think I am, my sin is nowhere near the holiness and righteousness of God. He tells us that in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 on the screen. You can see it as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All, say it with me, all, all have turned away, and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. As I was reading this, I remembered several years ago, I I came across a gift through a ministry of this Christmas mug. And, and I, I love it because it's like, you're all naughty. I thought every one of us, this might be a great Christmas gift for our church, that we give everybody this mug. It you're all naughty. There's none righteous, no, not one. And, and here he's simply quoting back to the book of Psalms, it's like, uh, we're all guilty. And yet, listen to the subtlety of how culture tries to distract us because it's like, well, there's nice and there's naughty. And and that's a subtle thing. Instead of understanding, Paul is saying, it doesn't matter, you're all naughty. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who does righteous, no one who does good. He goes on in Romans 3, verse 22, this righteousness… Now this is being made right with God. Now he begins to bridge this gap. God is faithful. He is the righteous one. We're not righteous, but he's making a way for us to be made right or righteous. And he says this righteousness to be right with God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Famous verse. This is one we pull out. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul's pressing into. So, one, two, three, he's making this case that it doesn't matter how good we think we are, we're all sinners before a holy God. Then he jumps into chapter four, the context of his letter. Uh, We we could almost say it's kind of a faith chapter, because he's saying we are made right by faith, that we are justified. Tricky word. And and he actually ends chapter four uh, talking about our justification, What does it mean to be justified? A simple definition uh, that a lot of commentators and theologians will use is simply this, justified. Simply put, to justify is to declare righteous. Justification is an act of God whereby He pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. We're justified not based on our works, not based on the things that we do, not based on our religious participation or activities. We're not justified because, well, I took Lord's Supper once, or I'm justified because I, was, I got in the baptistry once. We're not justified because we walked an aisle once upon a time. We're not justified because we raised our hand in a service. We're not justified because we just prayed a, a quote, magic prayer. What we call the sinner's prayer, which is nowhere in the Word of God, by the way. We are justified because of God's goodness and his righteousness and his love. And, and when we accept him by faith, his grace is extended to us to be make us right or to justify us in the sight of God. So having made this case that we're all guilty before a holy God, that we're all without excuse standing before this holy God, Paul reminds us that sinners can only be justified by faith, surrender, giving over of myself to Christ. And that doing so, that's apart from works. So grace, this principle on which God Reconciles a sinful people to himself as a holy God. It's a righteous act that he does for us, that it's done by faith, not merit, not works. And that's how the sinner receives that faith by grace. God doing something for us that we don't deserve. And so he finishes chapter 4 with these words. He said, he was delivered. Speaking of Jesus, because he's making this case, helping us understand. He was delivered. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And so as he completes those two words, our justification, then he jumps into chapter 5 with the word, therefore. If your Bible's open, circle that word, because anytime you're studying Scripture, when you see the word therefore, you have to stop and ask what it's there for, because he's connecting thoughts. Because of all that I just said, this is true. And so now he begins to press into this idea that we are now at peace with God God has reconciled, justified us, made us right with God. He's moved, he's bridged this gap, this separation between my sin and his holiness. And now, because of his great love for me, he's justified me so that he's bridged that gap and I can have peace with God. That's why we talk about peace at Christmas time because we are now at peace with God. I'm no longer an enemy of God. I am now a child of God. I'm in right relationship with God. So he begins verse uh, 1, chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. There's an assurance, there's a confidence that goes with that, and I love it, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verses six and seven, now he begins to create another contrast for us, to rejoice, to, to just have this boasting. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Wait a minute, what? At just the right time, Jesus coming... The declaration to the shepherds from the angels, glory in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Why? Because at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, I love Paul's illustration, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Put yourself in this scenario I have an option of dying for someone that I I think is absolutely evil. Or I might possibly be willing to die for someone that I love and care for that I think is really great. Paul is saying, no one's going to die for that bad person. But rarely, occasionally, someone might die for someone they love. And so Paul is now saying, hey, look, what, what just happened? Something, something happened. Rarely will someone die for a good person. But, and so here was his transition. As he leads us into verse 8, he simply says, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And so it's with that we get verse 8. There's your context. Verse 8, but God. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still what? Christ died for us. Knowing our state of sin, knowing our state of separation, my sin, the holiness of God, knowing that position, God chose love. He chose love for me to the point that he knew something had to happen. Something needs to happen in Dave's life. Something needs to happen in your life to reconcile my evil, my sin, no matter how good I think I am, my sin separates me from God. No matter how moral, no matter how religious, is separated from the holiness of God. And God, knowing that full well, said something has to happen for Dave, and and that something that needs to happen, Dave can't do on his own. Because when he looks at me, he needs to see not my sin, he needs to see his righteousness, his holiness. So God did something for me and for you that we couldn't do on our own. So he begins, but… And I want, I want to break this down for just a moment because this verse, again, it's, it's a great Bible McNugget. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture, along with about 3,000 others that I absolutely love. But when we begin to break this down, let me just break it down for a moment. Uh, it's, it's actually printed. If you printed your small group study guide, it's printed there. And I would say circle, highlight, underline key and significant words, and so what you should do is, is underline, highlight, and circle every word, because they're all incredibly significant. He begins with the word but. Mm-hmm. But is a transitional contrast, because what just happened, now of what is about to take place, it's connecting two things by focusing on their differences. My sin, God's righteousness. But God, the word is theos, it literally means supreme divinity. He is God, and I am not. There's the separation. He is God, I am not. But, transitioning, contrast, but God. But the divine, supreme deity, God the creator. But God demonstrates demonstrates that there's really two root words uh, that make up this word, and it's a primary preposition that denotes union or together, to stand or to establish. If you're looking at the King James Version, uh, they use the word commendeth. When's the last time you heard that one in conversation? But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the way I first memorized this verse back in fourth grade. To commend is to present as suitable for approval or acceptance, to recommend. So what he's saying is, but God established unity together so that he could approve and accept and recommend me to the Father. There's beef in that, man. I'm telling you what, that that we'll preach. But God demonstrates. There's a lot there. He says His, but God demonstrates His that that refers back to God, deity, theos, the supreme divinity, God, the creator of the universe. But God demonstrates His own, His own. This speaks to His possession. Well, what He's demonstrating is what He possesses. It belongs to Him, not me. Love. This word is actually agape. It is a the, the highest form of love. There's lots of words for love. Eros and uh, Philadelphia, philos. And this is agape. This is an unconditional love. This is the love that comes from God. He possesses it. It's who he is. But God demonstrates, commends his own love for For or toward, this is a primary uh, preposition, literally to be into, to, or toward. God is doing something to us, toward us, to demonstrate, to bring us, to unite us. His own love for us. Who is us? Us are the ones that are sitting over here separated from the love and righteousness of a holy God. He knows where I am in my sin, and yet He did something about it. His own love toward, for me, toward us. In this, it's a conjunction. I sound like a student. I'm I'm an awful student, by the way. You could ask Mrs. Potter, my fourth-grade teacher. I never would have have understood a conjunction or a preposition. But here it is. It's a conjunction. It's connecting two events that that have already been stated because of our state of sin. He's doing something for us in this, knowing full well where I was. He's connecting these thoughts that while, in other words, even knowing full well my state of sin and separation, while we, us sinners, were separated from God, He demonstrated His own love for us in this. Connecting the two ideas while we were in a state of separation, we sinners were still past, knowing that we are now justified. He's saying, We knew this even when you were still a sinner. Dave, even before uh, I, I died, even before you received me and surrendered your life, even before that, while you were still a sinner, knowing full well now I am justified, but Dave, even before you were justified, even before you were righteous, I did it even then. You were still sinners, a sinner separated, dead, spiritually dead, separated from the love of God that was demonstrated in Christ. He says Christ, Christos, anointed one, the Messiah. This is a phrase that he's talking about, that baby that was born in a manger that that we're going to celebrate. He died. Christ, the Christo, the Messiah died. Part of that that word, the, the root of that word in the Greek is literally to be away from that that necessary to remove from sin. Uh, understand, Understand what Paul is saying. The depth of what he's saying is that even though he knew God in His holiness and righteousness, knowing full well where I was, he had to die. He had to separate himself for that moment to step out of the glory and splendor of heaven to take on a human form and, and to experience death, to take on my sin. We can just read this and it can be so passive when we don't really understand the glory of what God is sharing here. We can celebrate Christmas, and we can bring all the tainted ideas into the celebration, the fat man with a beard, and and the gifts, and the reindeer, and all things. We can bring all these ideas into, and we can miss the hope and the glory that it was that baby in the manger who stepped out of glory. He stepped out of heaven. He stepped away from his holiness and his righteousness to take on sin for me and for you, because what? He had to die It was necessary, Paul is saying in that word, he's saying it was necessary in order to remove my sin to make me right with God. That death was absolutely necessary. For, on behalf of, for the sake of, Christ died for. Christ died because I needed it. Christ died for the sake of Dave. Dave uh, needed him to die, and Jesus died on behalf of Dave. That's the joy that we're experiencing, that he died for us. Paul is writing to a body of believers, and so he's saying us. It's a generic plural. It's us. It's our. As, As followers of Jesus Christ, you can say Jesus died for our sin. Yes, He died for my sin, but He also died for our sin. He died for us as followers of Christ. That's a lot. That's a lot in a few little words. And, and uh, I remember several years ago preaching a, a series, and, and uh, I get stuck on verses sometimes. And one day, one day after church going to lunch, Leslie said, hey, babe, great great job today. You got through one word. And I said, but what a significant word it was, right? I mean, to really understand God's Word, we have to do more. That's why regularly we're, we're challenging small groups and, and people as they study God's Word. Don't simply read the Word of God for quantity, read for quality. Begin to press in, dive into God's Word. Now here's what I love because what what Paul has done up to this point is, is he's he's saying there's bad news, but there's good news. My dad was a prankster, a jokester, very fun-loving guy. He used to love good news, bad news jokes. Anybody? I, I, I still love good news, bad news jokes, right? Like um, if you think Friday is a sad day, just wait because tomorrow's a Saturday. Uh, or the, the good news, bad news about the, the pastor that was told of that he went before his church and he said, hey, this morning I have good news and bad news. And he said, first the good news, we have enough money to, to put up our new building. For our new building project, we have all the money that we need. He says, the bad news is it's still in your pockets. <laughs> right? So, good news, bad news. Uh, now, I carried that love for good news, bad news jokes into my my fatherhood, into my dadship, my authority of being a dad. And so, in our family text thread for years, I will occasionally send a text, and I'll say, it's not as bad as it looks, and then I'll attach a picture, you know? I gouge my finger, several stitches, gouge my leg, all these things, and so I would do this, and so my family's just getting used to this, yeah, it's a dad joke, And now he's taken it to the digital world. We can't run from We live in three different time zones from dad, but he still follows us with his dad jokes. So several years ago, uh, I was in Alaska working with a church plant uh, that we were working with up there. And uh, we… Busy ministry time. Please understand. Busy ministry time. So we took time away to go sledding. And this is where we went sledding. A place called Hatcher's Pass. Seriously, does that look like a blast or what? We're doing some extreme sledding, and we're like in the middle of all this stuff. And um, let me just say, we had fun, and some of us got hurt. And um, so, I sent a text. Now, you know, we're up in the mountains. There's like no real service up there. But I sent a text to my family, and I said, "It's not as bad as it looks." Well, without service, the picture didn't go through, so they're waiting, right? And now they're a little bit nervous, Leslie admitted later. It's like, I was nervous because, like, I thought maybe it really was worse than it looked. But in our extreme sledding, this was the picture that was supposed to go with it, right? Um, Let me just say we had a blast. Uh, For the rest of the trip that we were there, what you don't see is, is, I mean, it was cold and that, but I mean, I was bruised, I was scraped, so for the rest of our trip as we're loving people around Anchorage, people are like, what happened to you? And all I could say was, we went sledding at Hatcher's Pass, and they're like, oh, that sounds cool, you know? So anyway, good news, bad news, and so when we look at the Word of God, what we understand is that there's bad news there's horrible news. We are sinners and we're separated from God. But here's what I think we fail to understand sometimes in church life. To really understand the good news of Jesus, we have to understand how bad the bad news really is. And sometimes we forget. We get sucked into this idea that, well, people aren't really so bad. They're good. They're moral. They do good things listen, it doesn't matter what kind of good things people do. They are sinners and broken before a holy, righteous God. So, when we really, really understand the bad news that we're sinful, we're separated from God, but that God loves us so much that He chose to die in our place, we have to really understand, embrace the bad news To understand the good news. We talk about the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. And I think in so many ways in in Christian life, we've cheapened it to, well, it's good news. It's great news. The angels made the declaration we bring you good news of great joy. And we only understand the good, good news when we understand how bad the bad news really is. Can I challenge you just kind of right here to begin to pray for lost friends, lost family this Christmas season? God, would you please help me understand how bad the bad news really is? Because I have family, I have friends that I love that you love way more And until I understand the depravity of that sin, that they really are naughty, that we're all naughty, there's none righteous, no, not one. And God, until I fully understand that, I will never truly embrace the good, good news. So now we come to our first point. God's love is good news. People need to hear the good news. You and I have that good news. And people need to hear it. And so often love and truth is so greatly misunderstood in our culture. Especially in our world with all the information overload with the social media. People say whatever they desire and other people just, we just believe it. We don't even stop and think about it. We don't process it. We don't go to God's word and say, is that really true? No, we just take it. It was a guy, he did a video. Of course it has to be true, right? like that quote from Abraham Lincoln, don't believe everything you read on the internet? It's like, he really said that. He really said that. I think it was like 1859. I think he really said that. We can't just arbitrarily just take everything that our culture throws at us. we got to come back to the Word of God and say, but is it true? People are confused over the love of God because they ask questions like, well, if God is really a loving God, how could He, blah, 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 blah. How could He allow good people to do this? And my question is always this, what makes them good? People say, well, if God's really a loving God, how can there only be one way? I said, listen, if God is truly a holy, righteous God, I am amazed that there isn't even a way. There is a way. I can't believe there is a way for me to be made right with God. And so when we embrace this truth of God's love, it makes us the most bigoted, most intolerant people in the world today because of Jesus' bigoted statement when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And in our tenderness, in our compassion for people, we begin to dumb down the bad news because we really want them to feel good. But what I've discovered is that as a dad, my job was not to make my kids feel good. I had conversations with every one of my kids at one point in their life simply saying this, I know that you don't like me right now. And I'm okay with that. Because the worst thing I can do is lie to you. I don't expect you to like me right now. I am disciplining you. I am trying to correct your behavior to fall deeper in love with Jesus. I'm not concerned with whether you like me right now. I know you don't. And as your dad, I'm okay with that. What I want you to do is love me and respect me because that's God's command to you. And God's command to me is to love you and to discipline you and to correct you and to lead you to love and grace and the admonition to understand God's love for you. And folks, until we bring that mindset to our culture, doesn't mean we have to hate people, it means we have to love them, but we have to love them so deeply that we're willing to tell them the truth. Just tell the truth. But like the word of God says, speak the truth in love, in grace, in mercy, with kindness with the kindness of Christ, because Romans 2, he says, hey, it's only the kindness of God that even leads us to repentance. It's only the kindness of God in someone's life until they begin to embrace the bad news that they begin to even think about the good news. So what's going to happen? Two, God's love is based in His nature and character. When we read Romans 5, 8, uh, what we understand is this love that God is demonstrating for us is possessed by God. Now, you think, well, what makes that a big deal? Well, the Word of God tells us that that God is love, 1 John chapter 4. God is love. You and I demonstrate love. We make choices. Love is a verb. We choose to love someone. But love is not my character. When we begin to break down theology, you get into what are intrinsic and extrinsic values. and and character. God's intrinsic nature is love. He is love. He doesn't simply demonstrate love. He doesn't simply choose to love. He is in His nature and character love, and that love is demonstrated through grace, through mercy. That love is also demonstrated through justice. Yes, His love is even demonstrated through wrath because God must punish sin. If God's nature and character is holy and righteous, and if God's very nature is love, then God is obligated by His character to punish sin. But His love is based in His nature and His character. Biblical love is, is both emotions and affection as well as actions. Actions. It's possible, as we see in our culture, to have this sacrificial actions and yet lack love. But it's not possible to love without action. It has to put itself into motion. It's more than sentiment and feelings. It's also not simply actions. People do good things all the time because they're trying to appease God, and yet you can do good actions and not have love. Third, I want you to see that God's love is a gift. When we talk about this is is the season of gift-giving, gift-receiving, you know, the Bible says it's it's better to give than to receive. But man, on Christmas, you like to receive, don't you? But here's the joy. As as parents, we've kind of learned to find great joy in doing for others. What an incredible joy to give Good gifts to our children. That's exactly what Romans 5, 8 is all about. Our heavenly father, our good father that we talked about, we sang about this morning in worship. The father's in the house. He's a a God of love, and he's demonstrated that love for us, and he offers us this gift. Here's what we need to know about this gift. This gift is available for all. God's love, His forgiveness, His grace by faith is available to all, but it's not automatic. And this is the hard thing for our culture to understand. It's like, well, if God really loves us, It is available. It's fully available, but it's not automatic. That gift has to be received. Ephesians chapter 2, you can see it on the screen. This is another one of our great Bible McNuggets that we hang on to because it's deep theological truth. That's why we love this. For it is by what? Grace you have been saved. What? Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I need to volunteer. Who? All right, hey, come come here. What's your name? Yell it loud and proud. Kimberly. Kimberly. Give Kimberly a hand. Kimberly's going to come up here. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Kimberly. See, now, Eric, come on up here. Now, everybody in the place is going, I should have volunteered. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. First time with us? You've been around a while. No, I. this is my first time here. Oh. <laughs> come on. Glad you're here. Thanks. Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, I won't embarrass you as much as I was planning to because, it's, it your, because it's your first time. Um, you love Christmas? Where'd you, where'd you grow up? Here. Here in Raleigh? I did. Wow. Leesville Road. There's three Raleigh residents that I've met that are like actually from here. Everyone else is from somewhere. Great to have you. So just For for a picture here, right, God's grace has to be received. It's a gift. That's what Ephesians just told us. It is a gift. So, Kimberly, we're new friends, right? feel like we've known each other for almost a minute now. Almost an hour. Uh, You've known me way more than I've known you, apparently, (laughs) back there. So, Christmas time, let's just for a moment, right, here's how we give gifts. We save our nickels and dimes… Because there's something you really want, and I know that, and I, and I want to provide that for you. So, so, I save my nickels and my dimes, and I go to the store, and I buy a gift. God, this is heavy, by the way. Oh. I buy the gift. Let me ask you a question. Who does this gift belong to? God. You. It belongs to me. I bought it. I, and this, is, this is not like some spiritual gift, okay. right? This is, this is like… Walmart. This is like Walmart, okay? Um, so, this is me to you. Take got out of the equation. This is a spiritual picture. I saved my nickels and dimes. I went to the store, not Walmart, someplace a little more top notch. Um, I wouldn't even know what that is, by the way. Um, but I bought the gift. Who does the gift belong to? You. It belongs to me. Do you agree? Yes. Because who paid for the gift? So I possess the gift. The gift is mine. I offer it to Kimberly. And and if I offer it to Kimberly, is it hers? Is the gift yours? Do you feel like you're on Prices Right with Drew Carey? Kinda. (laughs) (laughs) Let's make a deal. Behind door number one, we have. uh, Okay, so the gift is mine. We agree that it's mine because I purchased it. I possess the gift. But I offer it to you, is the gift yours? Not it was intended, but what do you have to do to make it yours? Accept it. You have to accept it. Am I taking it then? Are you, are? <laughs> this is the question. This is the battle of culture right now. I don't know, do I take it, do I not take it? Is it mine, is it automatic because He intended it for me, or is there more to it? It's not a trick. Okay, okay. now. Now, there's been this exchange. Who does the gift belong to? It belongs to Kimberly. I no longer have it. I may have the receipt, but but I have transferred the gift. The word that Paul uses in Ephesians, I really love it. He imputes his righteousness on our behalf. He's given me the gift. He's offered it to me, but it was never mine until I received it. Kimberly, you received that gift, that gift is yours. And that's the picture that we have with Christ. So give Kimberly a hand. Thank you. <laughs> Pleasure to meet you. Thank you. That is yours, by I the keep way. This yes. Now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She says, I keep this now? I'm like. Yeah, because truthfully, I don't know what it is or where it came from. I just saw it sitting <laughs> by the tree back there. If that wasn't sitting there, you were about to get a really cool bass guitar. So, <laughs> God's gift has to be received. Can I challenge us as a church as we move into this Christmas season to give the gift of salvation, to offer that? We can't, it doesn't belong to us. But listen, here's what, here's what I've come to realize the gospel of Jesus Christ came to me on its way to someone else. It is the gift that keeps on giving. And as you step into opportunities this season to convey the love and the hope of Jesus Christ, can I just ask us as a church, can we pray for those opportunities? God, give me those opportunities. God, in those moments that you will provide because he absolutely will provide, God, would you find me faithful in the moment to convey your good news and your love to those that need it? Let's pray together. Father, in this place, we praise you because you are good. We praise you because your very nature and character is love. You are holiness and you are righteousness. You demonstrated that love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, God, I just thank you for the joy of knowing you. I thank you for the gift of salvation displayed through your love as you took on human form in that sweet little baby that was born in Bethlehem. Lord, as we prepare to celebrate that, let us realize that it is your love. God, it is your love. Demonstrated for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.